0: Welcome back to Bloody Babble's Podcast! Hey there, Babylonians! Today's episode is brought to you by Hugh Kitchen. Hugh is a family-founded chocolate and snacking company focused on creating products that match ultra-simple ingredients with unbeatable taste. Built on a strong mission to help people get back to human, Hugh only uses simple, real, and responsibly sourced ingredients. Hugh obsessively vets every ingredient to unite unbeatable taste with unmatched simplicity. They go beyond what is easy and expected to ensure that their products and practices are ethical and put both humanity and the human body first. All of Hugh's products are gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, and aren't heavily processed. Use code POD for 15% off your next purchase at Hugh Kitchen. That's code POD. Pod T-O-D, for 15% off at dot com, and find out why Hugh helps people get back to humans. Hope everyone's been doing good in this crazy, crazy year. Um, so it's just me tonight. Um, I'm here with my dog, so I'm going to, guess, finish this story off. Um, me and Chana were going to record together, as we always do, but we live about like 15 miles apart, and I don't know if you guys have been watching the weather the last couple days by the time this airs, um, (laughs) it's been crazy freaking cold, um, snow, ice, freezing grossness, and, um, we just, uh uh-uh, come here, bring me that, come here, Chishi, that is my dog, and the squeaker toy, okay, not while I'm recording, homie, um, (laughs) anyways, so we, uh, She's just like, if you want to go ahead and record on your own, (laughs) she's messaging while I'm recording this, Um, go for it. So uh, I'm going to be ending this case. Um, I think it could have actually been made into four parts, but I know that's a lot. Um, I mean, I've been pretty darn detailed. I mean, I've been reading in this book. Um, I've taken extensive notes on my own. It's just this awful, awful murder of sweet Shanda Sherer, uh, the 12-year-old. and So um, we had left off with that. Her body had been found by Don, um, one of the—he lived nearby. And, um, you know, I mentioned what—we get more into detail about, like, what actually happened to her because I know I mentioned how she— got sodomized and there's way more than that so we're gonna just base it off um after she got found um the girls went back to Lori's house so they could clean the blood off the car Lori acted as if nothing happened and asked her dad to help her fix the muffler with blood potentially still being seen by him there were and there were there were bloody handprints all over the inside of the trunk there was a bloody sock that was chandas and they ended up Um, adding that to the fire that they had started to burn some of the other clothes that they had. Um, Lori noticed something and she picked it up and it was a fragment of, um, I guess, trigger warning. This whole episode is going to be more of a trigger warning, even more so I think than what like the initial torture that she goes through. Um, But Lori noticed something and she picked it up and it was a fragment of Chanda's skull um Lori told Melinda to smell it and Melinda just slapped it from her hand. And, Cause Lori is so fucking twisted in her head. And she um makes a joke and says, Oh, I guess the dogs will get to eat it, which uh, that's, that's rude to dogs as I'm sitting here with mine. Um, Peggy, who's Lori's mother noticed Melinda was leaving. Actually she was leaving. She was acting very nervous and that she was just acting off. And she said that, um, Pope had called and said to call her back. Um, To call Lori back as soon as possible. So when Hope got dropped off at home, she went through the whole house and kept screaming, This isn't happening, this isn't happening. Not knowing she wasn't home alone, her brother was there and he asked what the hell was wrong. Like, why are you screaming? I guess her and her brother weren't super close, but she would said she'd seen a car crash and that people burned inside of it the night before, and he was like, oh, that's all? So what? Oh, bro, bro, just wait. Just you fucking wait. Seems like a great person. I roll by, is what I put. Um, Hope finally got Lori on the phone, and she said she was going nuts and that they needed to get to her house as soon as possible. She was hysterical, and said she couldn't take it. I was worried of being caught, and Lori, of course, brought her, <laughs> her I wrote, her stones of wonderment and said everything was in, was favorable and that everything was going to be just fine. Girls, please stop. Going back, um, so that's where we leave the girls for the time being. So then we go back to, you know, Steve's house, which is where Shanda was abducted from. They um, didn't know her body had been found. The whole neighborhood was trying to help, including Michelle and her mother, who were Um, with Shanda before she was abducted, but she, Michelle was the girl who invited Shanda to the birthday party and, um, had to ask to have her spend the night. God damn, why didn't she spend the night? Um, they searched through Shanda's purse and called every phone number they found in her bag. They even reached out to Amanda Hevron and said, um, she hadn't spoke to Shanda in weeks because they made it very clear they didn't want them talking to each other. Um Steve's friend Joey Craig who was a police officer in a neighboring town Clarksville was called and he checked with other police departments but to no avail. Nothing had been heard of a little girl missing anywhere. Um Joey picked Steve up <clears throat> and they searched the area. Hold on. Stopping and asking anyone and everyone if they'd seen a young blonde girl wandering around. No feedback. They got back around noon with still nothing. Steve was sure somebody had grabbed her but his wife um, oh, his wife, Sharon, had recalled she didn't think someone would kidnap Sharon, Shanda. She was just like, there's no way someone would just pick her up. So Jackie, who's back across town, um, had the urge to call Shanda that morning and tell her she loved her. Um, She typically, whenever Shanda would go to Steve's house, she'd usually call her at night and tell her like good night. But she ended up calling Steve's house and received no answer because at that point in time, they were out searching for Shanda. Her not knowing that her daughter was currently missing. Um, Jackie was considering buying a townhouse and she was going to go house hunting that day with her sister, Debbie. And they, okay, so this was, this was something Jackie recalled on the day that Shanda is missing. And she had no idea anything about Shanda at this point, but she'd gone to go get ready, um, to go with her sister to go house hunting. And she went to brush her teeth when she saw her tongue was all black. Keep in mind, Shanda was burned alive and her tongue is protruding out of her mouth and it was it was black with soot um but her mom didn't know this so she was really freaked out so she brushed her teeth and the black whatever stuff came off her tongue but she called her doctor and he said it might be a viral infection that got into her tongue so he called in to get some antibiotics um, sent to her pharmacy but it was just like, what a foreshadowing for what this day is about to unfold for her. Um, so. Uh, she didn't know her daughter, 60 miles away, lay dead, burned beyond recognition. As they were about to leave, Steve called and he said he didn't want to call earlier to upset her, but that Shanda was missing and they couldn't find her. So 15 minutes later, Jackie arrived at Steve's house and they called the police. So if you're confused about, like, how she's 60 miles away and she got there in 15 minutes, it's because you gotta remember, Shanda was picked up and taken to another, like, city that wasn't, um, where her dad lived. Um, so if that was confusing, that's why. So anyways, um, a Clark County officer came and filled out a missing person report. Steve's house was full of family and friends by this point, because you remember everybody was going to gather there anyways to help with remodeling on his house. So then he, um, got, yeah, they were all there at this point, you know, and everybody knows Shanda. You're like, it's a pretty small community from, um, from what I understand and read. So, some started to do the remodeling to keep their minds off this terrible unfolding in front of them, and Steve was far too jittery to help. So he would end up leaving the house and go into the garage by himself and cry. He didn't want anyone to see him being upset, you know, that his little girl was missing. So we're moving to the um, the Indiana State Police Detective Steve Henry so there's there's lots of steves and repeat names in here steves and amanda's a glower but um he was the detective that was put along put on this case alongside curtis wells who's the lab tech so all four men uh henry wells spry and shipley spry and shipley are the two officers that um were uh, found her body or the officers that were first at her body Um, so at first they thought that she was a woman in her early twenties. They thought then Henry's like, "Mm, maybe she's 17 or 18, but looking at pictures of Shanda, like I wouldn't put her at 12 years old. Like she, and even says in the, the book that I read, um, little lost angel, um, that she was very physically mature for her age. So it, it was easy to be confused that she, this body they found looked older than it actually was. Um, So Henry said, what kind of animal would do something like this? They studied the position of her arms, deeming it possible she had been alive when she'd been set on fire, which she was. Making an assumption, she tried to get the burning blanket off of her. She had the bits of cloth in the clenches of her fist. Chipley reached out to local police departments for missing person reports of young women in late teens to mid-20s. Wells videotaped the body and surrounding area, following with color photographs. Steve Henry questioned the Foley's some more, which is Don Foley and Greg, and, um, who had discovered her body, essentially. Don the father, uh, Greg is the son. Henry figured if Don touched it at 10.40 a.m. and she was cold, and Greg Foley drove by half an hour before that and didn't notice smoke, she would have had to been burned sometime before 20, 10 o'clock. Okay, I'm going to get ahead of myself if I start talking. So, They noticed footprints, besides the Foley's, and the police, in in the police footprints and the the tire tracks, in hopes that they would provide a clue to the murderer's identity. Not knowing that there was going to end up being four, but anyways, there was some gravel that was disturbed 100 feet from the body, indicating a possible scuffle. They called the highway department and had learned the road had just been graded three days earlier, so the gravel had been kicked around since then. There was red cloth gathered near the body and an empty melted plastic two-liter soft drink bottle no missing reports came back to match the description of this body and no one could tell where she could be from. Um, Henry ended up squatting beside her charred figure and said, help us find who did this to you. Are we missing anything that will tell us who killed you? Help us find this monster monsters. There's more than one. So Laurie and Melinda. um, So we're moving back to these girls. Sorry, this is a lot of back and forth, but I mean, it's kind of, I'm kind of following the timeline of how this, um, the story was wrote between the sources that I used. Oh, gosh. <coughs> I just breathed too much. I just had, you know, a Dr. Pepper cream soda because that's what I drink. Um, so the girls, Laura and Melindy. Laura. Laura and Melindy. I just blended their names. Did you hear that? Jeezo Pete's. Lori and Melinda were holed up at Melinda's house when Melinda called her friend, Crystal Wathen, um, a girl who she'd been friends with since kindergarten. They ran with different crowds, but they were they always remained super close. Poor Crystal. Um, Crystal said Melinda called her crying and begged her to come over. And Melinda said, Janda's dead and I need to talk to you. So Crystal was like over there. Her mom dropped her off. So just after that, another girl named Leslie Jacoby. Jacoby? Leslie Jacoby. That sounds right. Um, Right after Melinda hung up with Crystal, Leslie was supposed to have gone to the concert with Melinda the night before, but couldn't and wanted to know how it went. She said Melinda sounded dazed and was crying, and Melinda told her, I've done something really bad, and I can't tell you what it is. Leslie kept trying to persuade her to tell her what she had done, and Melinda then said, what would you do if I told you I killed somebody? (laughs) Uh, I'd be like, yeah, okay. No. Nope. So Melinda didn't tell her who she killed, but she had done something, but she said she had done something bad and was going to hell. Well, honey, hell doesn't even want you. But anyways, um, she blamed Laurie and her devil worshipping. No, 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 no. It's not Laurie's fault. Laurie was just willing to go be a part of this because she seems to not be able to fit in anywhere and will do anything to get accepted is what I'm um, just guessing and judging. So whatever. I thought these girls need to have any sympathy at all because they're monsters, but anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm going crazy, bloody battles, this is what we're here for, there's so much love in my mouth, sorry, my dog is like comfort licking my hand right now, um, so Crystal knocked on the door, and she came in the house, and Lori just sat on the couch, she had no emotion, as Molina started crying more, she told about Shanda's murder, and at first Crystal didn't believe any of it, but as the story went on, She knew these girls had completed the ultimate crime. Lori apparently started laughing and said she didn't feel bad about killing Chanda anymore because she's a fucking monster. Fucking monster. Not that Melinda's an innocent little fucking angel, because she's not. But Lori, I don't know, something ain't right in that girl's head. But, um... I keep saying um and uh, a lot. I'm so sorry. I'm here talking to myself and I'm fine. So, anyways, Melinda then called Amanda, but she wasn't home. Um, she had been told that she was at the mall with a boy named Jeffrey Stettenbends, and I know his last name doesn't matter, but I like that name Stettenbends. Um, Melinda called the mall office and had Amanda Page saying it was an emergency. And when Amanda picked the phone up, um, Melinda said she was on her way to pick her up because she had done something horrible. So, um, poor Jeffrey just get, he, uh, like, I guess had like a low key crush on, uh, Amanda, even though she's like, clearly like this super tomboy, lesbian kind of girl, whatever. But some boys tend to like that for some, whatever reason. So he's just left at the mall because Amanda leaves with Melinda and Lori and they go back to Melinda's house and the two girls go upstairs. Melinda hugs and kisses her. And then she's like, Shanda's dead which I'm like, whoa, whoa, like that's, that's not only heavy, just in general, but to say something, oh, hi, sweetie, Mm, kiss, kiss, hug, hug. Oh, by the way, the girl that you've been dating forever that I hated and stuff. Oh, by the way, she's dead. Um, Amanda, of course, didn't believe it until she saw Melinda's tears. Um, She said she just wanted to beat her up, but that Lori went and killed her and I put here, which is shit because she's poured that last bit of gas on her. And that's ultimately what took Shando's life. And we'll get into that more later because things get super, super detailed. But it's just like, she tries to put all this blame on Lori. But I mean, I guess uh, it's so traumatizing. So you're going to try and do the blame game, even though it literally was what you wanted to happen. You had the, and then, oh, just, just wait, just wait. There's more. There's always more. Keep checking my recording to make sure it keeps going. So, okay. So, they went downstairs, and Lori ended up showing them the bloody trunk. Um, Amanda saw the blood-stained sock, and she knew that it was one that Shanda had always worn. Like, And, okay. And I, I don't know. I don't, I I don't put any, I don't even say I would blame Amanda. But, I mean, she could, she could have been up front and been like, no, I like both of you. And if I can't be with Melinda and I'd rather be with Shanda, I don't know. I don't know if they're there. that's a big, what if, uh, I don't know. I, if you tell me your thoughts about that, I don't know. I'm, uh, there's, was a big Dr. Phil special on this and I've only watched bits and pieces cause I couldn't find the whole thing on YouTube, but you can go check out their interviews of them. like recently, I think it was like 2013 or something like that. Don't quote me on that year. But Amanda was just like, she's like I. She's like I should have just been, I should have just stopped it, and I could have, but I didn't. And she's like I miss her every day. I don't know that whole thing. I'll I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, anyways, so so um, Amanda, you know, recognized the sock. She, uh, She felt guilty because she knew it was her love affair with Shanda that caused all of this. So Amanda then begged to be taken home. Um, so she gets taken home and Melinda kisses her goodbye and, you know, swears her to secrecy, like, don't say anything to anyone. And Amanda, of course, promises. And then she goes inside her room and she begins to pull out all of the notes that Shanda had read, sent to her. And then that's when she finally, like, hit the realization, I guess, that, you know, this girl is dead and I did love her. And I, okay, so I thought I was recording and I had not been. So, (laughs) dang it. So, I've just been talking about Amanda and how she got upset and that, you know, she did love this girl. So, I had to stop. I'm recording now, obviously. Because, um, but, okay. There was a cop that just, like, went through my neighborhood. Like, I'm sitting in my dining area. I have a, a window right beside me and this I see these lights pull in, and I'm like, okay, and then they like stopped, and they're like pointing right at my window, so I got a little spooked. That's why I had to stop for a hot second, and then I thought I hit pause when I did it, and now I undid it, so I just got spooked for a hot second, and then they ended up going and flipping through, so I'm like, are they looking for someone? Should I be scared? So I'm like, ah, okay, so now that I'm behind, because I wasn't where I needed to be, so, okay, so we just finished with where Amanda is at with this. And, um, so I watched, there's a whole, there's a two part series on Dr. Phil that talked about this case with, um, Oh, excuse me. Shanda's mom. And then her sister Paige. And then they confront Hope Rippy. And, you know, talk to her. Um, I don't know if there's any snippets about Lori and how she was. But I watched, I watched just, there's several, several, several YouTube videos. And I'll link all of those in this show's description. But um, Amanda, like, she was, she's like, yeah, I was definitely, you know, I was heartbroken. You know, I did care about Shanda. She was a person I loved. And then, you know, if... I wouldn't have. Um, I think I ended up mentioning it in here. Like, if I wouldn't, if this torrid love affair wouldn't have continued, like maybe we could have prevented this. But I'm not play- placing any blame. I'm, you know, I'm very um, uh, neutral about this whole thing. Except that the four girls who committed these crimes are awful. Like, I, I don't think I could blame Amanda. I know there's some people who probably do. Um, which I mean, that's, that's you, you know, in a way I could definitely understand why people would feel that way for sure. Um, saying, you know, if you wouldn't have, if you'd have just left her alone and been like, or just stuck with one relationship, not that if she would have stayed just in a single relationship with Shana, I don't think that would have had a better outcome, but she was also a 12 year old child and she was 14 and they're just young and just, oh, there's just so many factors. So don't come at me if you don't agree with my views. They're not even my views. I don't even know. They are my views, obviously, or else I wouldn't be talking about them. So there's just, I don't know. There's a lot that could have been done differently, but unfortunately we can't change the past. So um, I'm going to just keep continuing now that I'm recording. Goodness gracious. So now we're going to jump to Tony because remember Tony at this point had been dropped off by Melinda and Laurie, because she had to go to work at Arby's. So this girl's going on no sleep. Oh, well, I guess she did get a little bit of sleep because she did get dropped off at one point. But, um, so she goes to work at Arby's, but she was on edge her whole shift. And her friend, Mikel, who came and she ended up telling Mikkel everything that actually literally happened. And Mikel was, you know, the one that covered for her was like, yeah, you can say you're staying at my house and I'll cover for you and be like, oh, she's in the bathroom, but we're having a great time, blah, blah, blah. So Mikhail said she knew a lawyer and that maybe that could maybe help and would have him call Tony later that day. So Tony's supervisor's like, you look awful and just look like you're sick. So maybe you should go home. Not a bad idea considering she's like kind of a part of a murder, but whatever. So she phones her parents, but they don't answer, of course. So then she calls Hope, you know, because that's a good thing to do. Call freaking Hope. And so Hope and her parents come to pick her up. And then they're like, hey, drop us off at the bowling alley because we're not just, you know, accomplices to a murder right now or, well, I mean, anyways. Anyways, so they go to the bowling alley and they, there were some boys there and they're like, hey, can you guys hang out with us um, to protect us just in case these two girls showed up, Melinda and Lori, and the boys, Sean Piles and Chris Alcorn are their names. And um, the girls end up spilling, like, they're like, you know, we just, we went through some crazy stuff last night. It was really bad. And then, um, get out of the trash. There you go. My goodness. Um, and the boys were like trying to like coax it out of them. Like, dude, what happened? Like, come on, you can tell us it's fine. And then the girls are like, "We was just two girls murder another girl. And we were there and we set her on fire and well, we, they didn't, but you know, just to that extent. And the boys were like, Oh shit, we got some crazy bitches. So they're like, um, you guys should go to the police. And the girls are like, yeah, 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 we'll do that. Sure. So they go back to Hope's house and they try to, you know, trying to decompress from this crazy, crazy shit day. And they, um, those off in front of the TV and then Mikkel all you know, calls cause she knows that they're at Hope's house saying, Hey, the lawyer, um, Daryl Oxier, wanted to speak to the girls. So Tony was like, I'll have to tell my parents what happened. And Oxier said to tell them to call, um, to have her parents call on him, um, for whatever their next move is. I'll edit that out. Okay. So, um, Tony goes to her house and at that point, hope's parents know what happened. And so she's got hoping that her parents with her, and she's like, I lied. I didn't go to Mikel's house. We went to Louisville for that hardcore concert that you told me I couldn't go to because it was in Louisville and it was really far away. And so Tony's father starts, he gets, he gets kind of angry with her. Like, like, why are you so frazzled? What are you like? Why would you lie? Like what else is going on? And so he thinks, no, it's his daughter. He's like, Oh shit. My 15 year old daughter's pregnant. Fantastic. No, no, no. Sweet, sweet man. Um, Clifton is his name. He's, uh, hope's dad ends up stepping in because Tony is babbling on and she's like trying to tell the story, but she's not making any sense. And yeah, notice how I added babbling to catch that Babylonians. Ah! So anyway, sorry, had to be lighthearted because shit's about to get real. So, uh, hope's dad steps in and is just like, um, these girls, our daughters watched Melinda and Lori kill another little girl. Hope's parents said they were going to take Hope to a hotel for the night and said Tony's father should definitely do the same. And Tony's father's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. 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 Sure. Okay. But nah. Tony's father's like, "Mm, no, he sees the rippies out. And um, then he tells, he goes into Tony's room and is just like, "Uh, no, we're going to go to the police department and you're going to tell them exactly what happened. And we're going to get this underway because in his head, going off my notes here for a hot second um he is like no you said that she was burned alive but and she very well could be alive still so if there's any moments we can give this girl a chance a fighting chance we're gonna go and we're gonna try and find her and get you know give her a chance to live not knowing obviously by this point that she was very much passed on I don't like saying I don't know dead, deceased. There's so many different ways to say it. None of them ever sound good, especially in a shitty, fucking, awful, disgusting situation like this. So now we're going back to the crime scene with Steve Henry and uh, Sheriff Buck. They were there for over seven hours to comb every single piece of evidence that these guys, these men, could cover to get every everything that they could. They took several photos. Um the lab tech earlier it was mentioned, you know, he took video, pictures, noticed the tire tracks, you know, the different sets of foot, footprints aside from the police officers um you know, surveying the situation now. So, um they said as they picked her up that there was so much <clears throat> excuse me, head injury that there was a pool of blood Underneath her head. Mm. Sorry for slurp noises because I'm drinking Dr. Pepper Cream Soda, as always. But, yes. Uh, awful head injury. Um, there was so much blood. And they ended up placing bags on her hands in case there were fingerprints of the killer and anything. And to, you know, honestly... Or, obviously, um, identify her with fingerprints if they were able to because her hands were also burned. Um so she's taken to the morgue at King's Daughter's Hospital in Madison. And this is all still happening on January 11th, going into January 12th. And so the next day, the 12th, um, she's taken to Louisville, Kentucky, for an autopsy to get done by Dr. George Nichols, who's the chief medical examiner. And he's also an expert on burn victims. So um, so Henry and Shipley leave the scene and they go back to their station Literally, they were only there for I think like two minutes. It said, and Daryl Piles, remember that last name? Piles. He walks in with his son Sean, and Sean was frazzled. He was upset, and he was like, "Um, I was just at the bowling alley with a couple of these girls, and they told me that they had witnessed a murder committed by two other girls. So he named Tony and Hope, and saying they had watched two girls kill another little girl, and that they burned her body. And he said them first and last name, Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey." So Sean said the girls said the murder happened sometime that morning out in the country. And at the same time, as you know, this interview is happening another calls in from a station over in Madison and the call at first, um, Steve Henry's like, you know, I can't take this call right now. And they're like, "Mm, no, but you need to take this one. So, um, Madison, uh, County or not Madison County, but, um, said that a girl and her parents had just walked into the, station stating there was something about a murder and he's like okay what's the name and they're like it's Tony Lawrence and they're like okay send him to my station um I think it's in Jeffersonville oh goodness I'm gonna get comfortable because I keep moving around because it's kind of cold in this part of my house because it's freaking frigid you know Kansas weather it's great so Tony arrives and um signs a waiver of her rights and then um they start recording you know and she's very she's very distraught she's already you know running on little to no sleep, just witnessed what she witnessed and didn't prevent. Because remember, remember Tony freaked out. Hmm. Flirt sounds yum. Freaked out and went and called, you know, one of a boy from school and chit chatted with him to chill herself out while all of this was going down. Could have called 911 instead, but did it. And then she goes and, um, at the second gas station when they got lost, was like, oh, ha, ha hi, some random boys I've never met before in my life. Oh, my God, do I want to go with you? Yeah, definitely, because these people are about to kill someone. But did she do that? No, she didn't, so fuck you, Tony. Anyways, um, Tony retold her tale mostly in a whisper, and her voice is very shaky. Um, She talked about Amanda and Melinda's relationship and how Melinda said she had wanted to kill Shanda. Um, She told details as how they lured Shanda from her father's house and how Melinda put the knife to her throat. Steve Henry was surprised to learn Shanda was 13, even though she wasn't. Um, she's actually 12, but that's what Pony Pony told them because she didn't even, she wasn't even sure of Shanda's age. Um, and that they, and he said that the body that they had found didn't match a 12 year old's, which I mean, um, he's once he, they piece all these puzzles pieces together and they're like, wow, she was definitely physically mature for her age. And it's just even more awful that she's 12. Sickening. continuing. They paused and called down to the other um, station in Jeffersonville. Oh. So these guys are okay. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. Sorry, my towns are getting all mixed up because there's so many. Um, to check if there was a missing person named Shanda that was about 13 years old. Um, the lab tech Wells made sure he heard the right age of the potential victim. Like he gave him this look, like, "Are you serious? That's how old she is? She's probably 13 years old." Like, shit, that's it doesn't make it any better, but it almost makes it. It definitely makes it worse. Like she's a child. But anyway, so the lab tech. Um. Oh yeah. So Sean Piles also mentioned Lori Tackett's name, and one officer knew her father, George. So they conversed about Melinda and her sexual orientation because that's what it all seems to come back to—is this crazy lesbian triangle? Even though that shouldn't even be a factor, but it, it's got in quite a bit until they questioned Tony further because they they you know. You, only ask so many questions before you need to give this kid a break. I mean, yeah, she's definitely a part of this, which they don't know at this point. But like, she—it's a lot, you know. She, you at one point, you know, if you remember—I um, don't remember. I think it had to have been in the second part um, on Friday's episode that she ended up hugging Shanda and begged Melinda to just be like, "Okay, you scared her. You beat her up. Let's just take her home." And Melinda's like, "Shut up shut up, shut the fuck up." So, anyways, so. Um, so um I lost my police because of who I am as a person. Oh yeah. So um back to questioning Tony. So she mentioned the witch's castle and the long drive of Shanda in the trunk with just Lori and Melinda after they've been dropped off at Lori's house sometime in the middle of the night. Um her time frames aren't correct. And she talks like it's inconsistent with with um how Shanda's body was found and how it felt, you know, how they said it was cold. Um Greg the the son, had drove by 30 minutes before the rough time frame when they said that they were there so he would have seen them. So um uh yeah, so she talked about getting dropped off at Lori's house and she got to the part where Shanda kept screaming and how she was hit in the head with the crowbar, even tire iron, but yeah, anyways. Um then that's what the Lori laurie and melinda had told her and then they said something about gasoline and that they wanted to burn her and tony made it seem like she wasn't there when chanda was burned so when she's describing all of this she says that her and hope were at Lori's house and that they were not involved at all with the final moments of chanda's life which we all know if you go back and listen or if you read or if you go watch um Listen to the three hour podcast that the that's on YouTube. Like they're there. They go and pick her up in the morning, like early in the morning, because they're like, Oh, we're gonna go get breakfast and I'll take everybody home. No, she was still in the trunk at that point, and Tony was there, and they when they pulled her body out of the fucking car, she saw her arm and she lost her shit. And she's just like, I couldn't look anymore. I had to look away. And it's like, because you're a fucking piece of shit and you could have started freaking out. Granted, they may have killed her too, but at least you would have tried to do something and you didn't. This little girl died and you could have prevented it three different times. Two, technically. Okay, I'm fine. I had to go on a tangent. I'm very, okay. So she described the vehicle that Lori Lori drove. It's like a four, it's four door sedan. And I think it's like, like white with like a brown stripe or white with brown somehow irrelevant shipley sent an officer to go to laurie's house to see if a match a vehicle was there that matched the description remember laurie's not there she's at melinda's but anyways they were working on the timeline and how Tori, tony's story just wasn't lining up she made it seem like they burned her before 10 a.m but greg the son who drove by earlier would have seen that i already said that i okay so the way she described it from her uh no, the way she described it kept her from the scene at all, and that she was dropped off before they decided to burn Chanda for work. That she was dropped off before work. Just nope. You were there. You're a liar. You're a big fat liar face. Um, to decided to burn Chanda, and she kept fidgeting. She couldn't sit still, and her story wasn't going correctly. Um, it feels like she was like going back and forth, and um, Steve Henry, who was interviewing her was very suspicious of her misleading story but couldn't charge her for any for being an accessory to murder yet so officer spry he ends up leaving and he goes to laurie's house but her car wasn't there so you know they go and uh, knock on the door and her parents answer and um they're like, is Lori here? And she's like, No, that she's at um Mel- her friend Melinda's house in New Albany. But her parents didn't even know Melinda's name, but they'd already have enough pieces that they knew it was Melinda motherfucking loveless. Love less, because she doesn't deserve any. So they didn't mention the murder as of yet, um, to her parents because they you know, there's things there's steps you have to take like getting a warrant. So Lab Tech Wells goes to um, got Melinda's info because he knew of Amanda's father trying to keep Melinda away from Amanda. Like, this is a small town. Like they like, um, it mentioned that like Steve Henry, he's like, this is a small town. Like a lot of people know a lot of other people. And like, um, Sheriff Chipley is the same way in Jeffersonville, like, it doesn't take a lot to know, like, who's who, and it, what drama's going on with our kids, and blah, 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 and stuff like that, so, anyways, Henry then confirmed that Shanda's parents reported her missing at 1pm that day, they'd got, you know, they'd got notified from another police station, drinks lurked, mm mm-hmm. so, they knew that she lived in New Albany, but she was at her dad's house in Jeffersonville for the weekend, so the address Tony gave matched to Steve Steve's address because she you know told them hey we abducted her from her house and they received a call later that Laurie's car was at the Loveless residence and then they made plans for warrants of the arrest of the girls to search the ca- and to search the car and they um, end up going to the circuit judge and getting it signed off and they're starting you know this process and um, I don't know if it was mentioned earlier but Howard Henry who is Steve Henry's older brother who was, um, like a, like, like a past sheriff or like, just kind of like retired, but kind of, um, or I don't know, he was still active in the police community. Um, he and he's, they're all involved in this crazy, awful case. And so he volunteers to go and tell parent Shanda's parents that their daughter was deceased. So it was getting late. Like, okay, so I didn't, I don't think I, no, I definitely didn't mention that Tony went in at about 8 p.m. that night on January 11th to do this confession. So all of this happens over the course of nighttime. Like, it's getting in late, 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 late. So let's see here. I'm gonna, okay, sorry, I had to, respond because my child will be coming home soon anyways um let's see here i got to the part where oh goodness so oh yeah about you know everybody knowing each other oh and that they have to go tell her family that she is now deceased it was getting late oh yeah that it was like 8 p.m at night when she came to tell her tale So, Steve Henry got the arrest warrants ready and made the 45-minute drive to New Albany to arrest the girls. So, now we're going to, when Howard gets to Steve's, he, um, Jackie had left and she had went home. So, he tells her, he's like, or tells Steve, Steve tells Steve, God bless it. He's like, call her and tell her to get back here. And he's like, have you found Shanda? He's like, I'm not going to give you any information until, you know, both of you are here. So, I was like, that can't be a good fucking feeling. Just knowing that. I mean, if she'd been found, I don't, I guess I would want both parents to know. So Jackie and Paige had just gotten home. Um, They'd only been, they'd literally walked in the door for five minutes and they got that call to go back. And Jackie um, speeds back across town to Steve's house. And um, I, in the story, it says, Um, in the book, Paige was just like, mom, you got to slow down. You're going to get pulled over. She's like, I don't care if there's cops behind me. They're going to follow me until I get to Steve's house because I need to know what happened to my daughter. So she gets there and Howard sits them down. And all he says is your daughter is gone. Someone has taken your daughter's life. And Jackie screamed no. And she um, runs towards, uh, Steve's front door of his house and she collapses right in front of it and screams, no, no, oh God, it's not happening. Steve then sits there, um, and he's, he couldn't process the words, like he couldn't believe what he'd just been told. And he literally says, what are you trying to say? And Howard just goes, your daughter is deceased. She's been murdered. Who? Oh. Oh. Who? Oh, after, you know, this is probably, I would assume nine or 10 o'clock at night because, you know, Tony had just came in at 8 PM. So they've been, they reported her missing at 1 PM and eight to nine hours later, then you get this information. Like I'm like sitting here, my legs are shaking because I, I literally could not imagine. And I pray to God. I never have to. Oh, goodness gracious. So, um, at 2 a.m., so <laughs> a little while later, because it's a 45 minute drive to, uh, New Albany, Steve Henry and Buck Shipley arrived at the Loveless residence. Um, they see Laurie's car outside. Melinda's mother, Margie, answers the door and they're like, Oh, are you Mrs. Loveless? And she's like, Well, no, I'm divorced. It's Donahue now. And then Mike, her husband, because, you know, it's Margie, Mike, Melinda, Michelle, Melissa, all them M names, um, th- you know, everybody's like half asleep and she's like, she's very confused. And, um, Steve goes, is Melinda here? And she's like, yeah, they're up- She's upstairs sleeping. And she's like, is Lori, he's like, is Lori Tackett here? And she's like, yeah, she's also upstairs sleeping. And they're like, what's going on? Like, we have to see the girls first, you know? So they go up the stairs. The girls kind of sit up half groggily and the cops are like, um, girls, you need to stand up. And they were dressed, Like they had just like gotten in kind of thing or that they were going to wake up and they were going to be gone by the next morning kind of thing is how they were dressed. Like they were like fully clothed. Like they weren't in like t shirts and shorts to sleep in. Like they were dressed to leave. So the officers then said, um, you're being arrested for the murder of Shanda Sharer and Lori, you want to know what this stupid fucking whore says? She goes, we, are we on candid camera? Oh, like really bitch, Really? So, Margie starts crying, and she's just like, "Please keep an eye on my little girl. She's suicidal." She starts sobbing. she's like, "Oh my gosh, what um Melinda what have you done to Amanda because she knows that they you know had a lot of issues in the past and that they had this very serious relationship that she I'm not even sure if she knew how far it went. Oh, like that's not true because she knew that all of her daughters were lesbians because." At one point, Melinda comes home with hickeys way, way back in part one. So not even knowing, um, that Amanda wasn't the victim at all. She had, I don't think she even, I don't know her extent of the knowledge of Shanda and her daughter's anger towards them. But so they take the girls in, um, and Melinda immediately is bawling as they're getting her booked and for her charges, her charge. And so she then asks, you know, can I please call my mother? And while she's on the phone telling her mom, she's like, it was a little girl named Chanda, and that I was meant to beat her up, but someone had a knife and it went too far. And she, someone, someone had a knife and it went too far. Melinda, it was you. You had the fucking knife in your fucking bag and you put it to her throat as soon as you picked her up. You, this is, this is all on you. And I know there's a lot of people because there's a, there's like video. Oh, I'll get to that part at the end, but, um. Cause I'm not really uh, pleased with this ending of this case, to be honest with you. And there's just a lot of factors, anyways. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yeah. So they weren't 100% sure of hope in Tony's involvement, but didn't charge them right away. So because you know that story that Tony was giving wasn't like the timeline isn't adding up. So. Shanda's autopsy took place in Louisville by Dr. George Nichols. Her fingertips were burned, so they um, removed them to be sent off to match her fingerprint records. Um, and then her jaw was removed to save uh, or to have her teeth identified by her dentist because, you know, she had braces. If, they ta- if you remember back when they, the initial torture started, they started hitting her in the mouth and her braces cut her mouth. Um, okay, so I'm going to put a trigger warning here or say it anyways, because we're going to get into her autopsy and what the autopsy tech ends up finding. And so, okay. So big trigger warning. If you want to skip forward, um, some of it's 15 seconds, some of it's 30 seconds. And may, I'd say skip six to seven times, maybe. I don't know. I talk pretty quick. So maybe only like three or four. You can stomach it. Well, here we go, guys. So she had third and fourth degree burns on her upper body and her head. Her left ear was so shriveled from the flames that it almost didn't exist anymore. Her tongue protruded through her clenched teeth. Because if you recall, when um, when Melinda goes back to pour the rest of the gas on her body, she's just like, her eyes kept rolling back in her head and her tongue kept shooting in and out of her mouth. Like, because she had no control over it. <sighs> okay. Okay. Um, there were wounds on her feet she had binding marks from a rope also on her forearms and ankles, a small puncture wound on her neck because, you know, they tried to stab her in the neck and we're going to slit her throat, but the, ne- the knife that they had was, um, rusty and, um, old. So they, and okay, so a uh, small puncture wound on her neck, three lacerations on her scalp from a heavy blunt object. Remember they found part of her skull and then, Lori made the nasty comment about her dogs eating it. And then somehow her skull was not fractured and there was no internal hemorrhaging. Somehow, I don't, I guess they didn't fit hard enough, which is sick to say out loud. There were multiple lacerations of her anus and anal cavity. Indicated that she had been sodomized by a blunt cylindrical object. Inserted three and a half inches into her anus and damaged the inner walls. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That is, it was a lot to type out and it's a lot to read out loud. Um, she had internal bleeding indicated that she was alive when the sodomy occurred. So it was probably like we said, one of the times they stopped to shut her up, they ended up shoving tire iron into her. Okay. Her larynx and trachea were coated with a thick black soot, meaning she breathed the smoke in while she was set on fire. Her head and anus injuries she could have recovered from under proper care had she lived. So her cause of death was smoke inhalation and severe burns. (sighs) So we moved to Sunday, January 12th. It was decided that Lori and Melinda would be tried as adults and they moved Melinda to a different jail to avoid being able to contact Lori. Um, Shanda's parents then went to get ready for her funeral and they had their friend Jamie Rainey go with them, and he ended up going and looking at the body. And he came out, and he's like, no one should have to see what I just saw, let alone her parents. And um, it was, like, a, one of her favorite sweaters and a pair of jeans that her mother picked out for her. Oh, okay, so I had to take a small hiatus there for a hot second. Um, okay, yeah. Um, he's like her body or her mom's hands are the clothes and her hands, him the clothes. And it's just like, put these on her. And he's just like, I can't put the clothes on her. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, her body is so badly burnt and deformed that there's no way he's like, I could put them in the casket with her, but I could not put them on her body. And so he's like, it's, she's going to have to have a closed casket because no one is going to be able, no one should have to see what I just saw. And I'm like, as a parent, I would... I think I would have to see it, even though it would be burned in my memory for the rest of my entire life. But I would... I I, I don't know. Maybe it would be different if this... I prayed I, pray, I don't wish this on even my worst of enemies. To have to view a child that I'm sure this Janie was a friend and probably loved her just as much as her parents did. And he suggested that maybe we cover her in roses since it'll have to be a closed casket and that she'd be buried covered in roses. And both her parents agreed to that because they're like, Chanda would have loved that. Like that's how she should rest. So, um, obviously camera crews were constantly at the family home and even at the, um, funeral. Um, I remember our reading in the book, they, um, when they brought her body, I think it's to the funeral home, they were all the reporters were waiting at the front and they, um, caused a distraction and they actually brought her body to the back of the, why are you staring at her? Shiva, stop. There's nothing over there. She's staring at the corner of my room and it's tripping me out. First the cock car. Now my dog is staring at things. I don't like it. So, but yeah, they tricked the, uh, paparazzi, so to speak. By saying that, oh, they had a fake hearse come to the front of the uh, funeral home, and her body actually came in through the back, so they didn't even get actually get to see her actual casket. But it was, yeah, it was a crazy, you know, media frenzy. Um, Even at the funeral, they tried to interview uh, people as they were going in, and uh, her father made it very clear that no camera crews were going to be getting inside even though they tried to sneak inside but they were immediately dismissed and taken from the building but it was it was constant so stories swirled through town about what had actually happened what went on between Shanda and Melinda to have this be the outcome um there was you know school counselors were taken to both places and um You know, since she had just transferred from one school to the other to try and get away from this mess, and then and still ends up with this outcome. But then, her body was taken um, and laid next to her grandmother, and it said um, on the day of her funeral that it snowed lightly that day um, at the graveside service. So, going back to now, how we're going to start getting into the case. um, I I'm not going to go a whole lot into it. But how they figure out that Tony's timeline is bullshit because, you know, they found her body around 1040 a.m. So they said she would had and she was cold. So they, um, Henry, you know, going off hunch, he was like, okay. so they he went there um, to this gas station and tried to find receipts around 10 a.m. Um, you know, the the general time frame that Tony gives them. And so he goes and um, checks the receipt uh, counter, because apparently they have, like, constant receipts, and he's like, no one had bought a two liter of Pepsi or a couple dollars of gas around 10, but someone had at uh, 8.40? Is it 8.40? Yeah, because they found her at 10.30, sorry. And so he knew that something wasn't adding up. There was no record um, of a two liter being bought between 9.15 and 9.30, which is what time Tony thought they were at the gas station. So, but there was a receipt, receipt, jeez, a receipt that showed um, that a two liter, two liter, oh my God, Nicole Elizabeth, two liter of Pepsi and several dollars worth of gas had been purchased at 8.40. That's like almost, hmm like almost an hour before she, Not an hour, like 40 minutes to an hour before she said. So he drives the next morning to that gas station at exactly 840, buys a couple dollars of gasoline, and puts it into his gas tank. Then he drives to Lemon Road and goes to the burn site, parks his car, gets out, opens the trunk, and slowly walks to the edge of the soybean field where Shando had been burned. He stayed there for a few minutes, then drove to the McDonald's where the girls had breakfast. Um, buys a cup of coffee and he checks his watch and it's exactly nine thirty. So with that sequence of events, Melinda and Lori had not taken Tony home, Tony and Hope home after the gas was purchased. They were all there on Lemon Road when Chanda was burned alive. Tony had lied, but at that point, Tony did not want to cooperate. She wasn't. She didn't really want to answer any questions. <coughs> she shut her parents out. The media had tracked them down, and they were, you know, attacking them. Um, Hope was pretty quiet about it, too. And it was just becoming just more and more and more. And they were—they even searched the car, tried to um, pin it down to see if there was any evidence of drugs or alcohol in the car. Because, you know, Lori was very heavy into that type of lifestyle. So, eventually, all these girls... They finally decide, okay, it wasn't just the two at, um, oh, it wasn't just Melinda and Lori. Then they end up going back to, you remember those crazy twins, Larry and Terry Leatherberry. They end up going to, um, interview him, Henry and Shipley. They meet, uh, I believe it's Larry Leatherberry and, um, he walks out and one of his, uh, what he's wearing is a black t-shirt, black shorts on his feet were black combat boots. And he was wearing a black flowing cape, which flapped briskly in the January wind. Cause that's who Larry Leatherberry was. So as soon as he gets in the car, you know, Larry gives an automatic alibi before they even ask their first question, which I mean, it checks out as they come to find out. And then Larry talks about, um, everything that he knows about Laurie and Melinda and uh, talks about the seances and Laurie's fascination with the occult and how Laurie would claim that spirits entered her body and channeling episodes. Um, Laurie would take on alter egos, you know, what was it? Deanna, the vampirist or whatever, and how he and Laurie would cut their own arms and use their blood to draw pictures, blood art as they deemed it. And that he said, Laurie's obsessed with death and the prospect of performing a human sacrifice, and she even talked about burning someone before. Even though this dude was crazy crazy, I mean, his story checks out, because that's exactly what Lori said, and essentially did. So then he mentions Carrie Pope, and saying, you know, that she was friends with um, Lori, And um, ends up being, you know, with Melinda because they ended up going and picking Melinda up and taking Melinda, or not Melinda, Lori to Crystal's house. But Crystal's like, "Eh, I don't know, I can't stay there. And then she's stranded and then she's like, come live with me and my grandma. And then she, like, threatens to kill Carrie's grandma for her if she wants. So, they get down to the point and then Carrie gives, like, even more details than that. that We've kind of already covered. So, We get to the part where they end up charging off, um, I mean, yeah, they caught, uh, Melinda and Lori and they, you know, they were immediately charged with murder and then they end up bringing in, uh, Tony, um, in April of 1992, because this all happened on January. She ends up, um taking a plea bargain, and then September 21st, 1992, Loveless and Tackett end up accepting their plea bargains, and on January 4th, um, Melinda is sentenced to 60 years in prison, and she act. We'll get to that. We'll get to that! Believe it or not, it's uh, it's awful. Uh, Tony ends up... Um, She, you know, ends up serving... Let me see here. My notes are kind of all over the place because I don't have them quite in the order that I'd like them to. Yeah, so Tekken and Lovitz, they're both sentenced to 60 years in the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. Um, Rippy was sentenced to 60 years with 10 years suspended for mitigating circumstances, which that means in criminal law, a ah, mitigating factor is any information or evidence presented to the court regarding the defendant or the circumstances of the crime that might result in reduced charges or the lesser, lesser sentence. Basically, she blabbed and said, "Um, I didn't do it. I was just there, which is stupid, but whatever. So she gets 60 years, but on appeal, a judge reduced the sentence to 35 years, and in exchange for her cooperation, Tony also pled Um, was allowed to plead guilty to one count of criminal confinement and was sentenced to maximum of 20 years. So, 60 years, 60 years, and then uh, Hope gets 60 years and then gets reduced to, like, basically 50 years, plus 10 years of medium supervision probation uh, upon her release. So, that's how everything goes down um, in 19... um, Yeah, in 1992 into 1993, which, guys, I was born May 22nd, 1993. (laughs) So this all happened right before I was born. So we jump to December of 2000. So that would be nine years after um, the initial murder took place. And Tony Lawrence is released on parole December 14th, 2000. And then... (sighs) November 3rd, 2004, um, a judge reduce, reduces, reduces Rippey's sentence to 35 years. Two years later, on April 28th, 26th, she's released on parole. So then we jump to January 11th, 2018. That is exactly 26 years since this murder took place. And who's released? Lori frickin' Tackett on parole. I'm encouraging you guys, if you are totally interested to go look up some, just type in Shanda Sherer. and there's, there's bits from the Dr. Phil bit. There's, um, there's one interview of Lori and how she's like in prison and, oh, it's just, and she's so suddenly remorseful and isn't this dark, just, you know, mild teenager. So yeah, that's 26 years after and you get this, get this, September 5th, 2019 Melinda Loveless released on parole. So she served 26 years in prison and she has uh, Melinda will serve parole in Jefferson County, Kentucky. So, you know, there's, there's a, there's, there's a lot, I mean, yeah, they're sentenced. Um, And then in the one episode that I, or the one little snippet that I watched, there's actually several of them. I couldn't find the whole thing. And if I eventually do, I'll end up adding it to maybe like Instagram. I'll post it on our Twitter and Facebook and everything. But watching how uh, Melinda, not Melinda, Shanda's mom and sister, how they are with hope on Dr. Phil and how they absolutely will not, they have no absolutely zero desire to forgive her. They have no interest in it. They don't, Mitchell, they're like and some of the things hope said like kind of resonated with me like i i wouldn't say it was respect for her but she's like i'm not going to say i'm sorry because that's not going to change anything in how you feel about me and apologizing isn't going to fix this she's like there's she's like i don't know what i could do to fix it and uh jackie jumps right on her and she's like you should have served your full 60 years in that scene, okay, this is where this is what I wanted to tell Shauna, and she's she's gonna listen too. Um, I'm gonna send this to her early so she can listen uh, before I even edit it together. But ha, she okay. So while Melinda is in stop, um, at one point Jackie talks about how there is absolutely there is nothing in um in Melinda's eyes like you looked into them and like most killers don't, um, have anything in their eyes. Hey, stop it. She, she, so she talks about that. Rude. That was very rude, ma'am. Come here. Come here. Um, trying to keep them chill before I finish this out. I'm so sorry. Um, so she talks about how there's nothing in Melinda's eyes and how, I mean, Melinda's essentially the reason all of this, this night, Succeeds with the murder of Jackie's daughter, but, and she jumps down Hope's throat and tells her how she's such a terrible person and how, um, in the interview, they bring in Amanda also, and how she's like, Amanda feels no guilt. She, you know, she feels like she had little to no part in this. And like, they just sit here and bash, 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 but all of a sudden, Jackie, you know, somehow, you know, goes and sees where Melinda is being held in her prison, and she's like, oh my god, it was like looking at a completely changed person. Like, this isn't, this isn't like a damaged little monster girl anymore. Hey, stop. So, sorry, I had to pause there for a hot second. Um, <laughs> dogs are being loud. So, she is willingly... I guess, forgives, which I mean, I guess you can forgive. You just don't have to forget. And I don't think you, you could forget with such a horrific crime as this is, but she forgives Melinda and ends up donating. Melinda, while in prison, Um, trains dogs while in prison to help children who are um victims of heinous crimes and she trains these dogs to be um like emotional support dogs and melinda's or shanda's mom ends up going and donating a dog who she names angel in shanda's memory and like i watched the clip with melinda and she gets super emotional she's like "I can't believe you know it came for shanda and it came from shanda's mom and like i read the comments on this youtube video too and she's just like i'm gonna i'm training these animals to you know help and i'm doing it for shanda who oh, when she said that someone said that and I ended up having like, I was going to stop listening. because I was just getting kind of repulsed. Like, I couldn't believe like you sit here and dump down hope's throat and say, oh, you could have stopped this. You could have prevented this. So the fuck could have Melinda. So the fuck could have Lori. Definitely motherfucking Tony could have. But you dumped down hope's throat. Granted, they didn't. I don't know if there's other interviews where they, you know, they've confronted anybody else. Not that I'm going to justify that, oh, Hope didn't deserve to be reamed like that, because all of these girls do, and I feel like they should all should have still been in prison um, until 2071. No, 2061, because that would be 60 years, right? I'm not a mathematician. Don't judge me in my inability to math right now. So I just, I feel they should have served their full sentences. I don't care how good their behavior was. They kidnapped a little girl. They're all 14, or no, two of them were 15, Melinda was 16, and then Lori's 17. So they're all of age to know what they did was wrong. Melinda poured the rest of the gas on this girl, and was she ended her life. She, like, that was it. That last little bit of gas where she gets engulfed in flames, that's what took Shanda's life. But no. No, 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 no. Let's forgive her because she helps little doggies and helps little children. Cool. That's great. That's beautiful. Let some other inmate and put her in the fucking cell with other people who know she's a child murderer because she is. I'm sorry. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's me going on a tangent. That was me going on a tangent. Tangent? Tangent? So that brings us to the conclusion that these four monsters are walking among us in this world. Shanda was taken and they get to live their fucking lives. And that is just absolutely repulsive to me. I get forgiving to let your soul, you know, heal from this horrific, heinous, awful murder of your daughter. But I, I don't feel I could have been as, Caring, not—I don't know if it's caring, just kind towards the one who ultimately ended her life. I mean, yeah, Hope was the first one to pour gasoline on Chanda's body, but that's not. She wasn't the one who killed her. It was Melinda pouring the rest of the gas all over her, and that's what killed her. I've said that too many times now. I'm just, I, I, mm, as Jackie, I'm like, how, how the fuck are you going to be okay with that? You're gonna forgive Melinda, but you're mad at Hope. Granted, this was I think I said 2013. I I didn't even look at the date of when that um aired, um, on Doctor Phil. But it was a two-part um series, and maybe I'll link some of the videos of YouTube that you guys can check out if you want to, because this is, this is a, this is a heavy heavy case. I mean, three parts. I mean, the last one we did with three parts was was pretty. Wild too, but that was, you know, that was the feral child, and this is just a completely 360 from that. So, I really hope we did it justice. Like, I don't, I feel like you, there's been other stories that I've seen. Um, I know there's like a four parter, um, of this, this gal who does YouTube videos about true crime, and she covered this case in four parts. I feel like we could have probably gotten to that if we wanted to get insanely detailed, um, like going through this entire book. So, Until next time, our beautiful Babylonians, um, please reach out to us on, um, Twitter at bloody babbles. I've already got, um, some interaction. I've got some new cases that I'm going to be working on here soon, um, from a guy on there. So, um, I hope he's excited that we're going to be covering these and I hope I do them justice. Um, but yeah, Twitter, uh, Instagram and Facebook is at Bloody Babbles Podcast. You can send us a Gmail, bloody at gmail.com. If you have your own stories, if there's stories you want us to cover, um, I mean you can tweet us. Like it was a little confusing when I asked about those cases that um our friend Nate um requested of us. So um yeah, it's easier. Um I don't mind if you message on Twitter right now, because I don't I mean, it's easy to navigate things. Um uh, if you're feeling so inclined, you can donate to us through anchor. Um, there's a link at the end of every episode. Since that's what we record on, or you can go to patreoncom slash bloody babbles podcast. And if you want to donate there, there's different levels that you can donate at, even, um, custom as little as a dollar a month, whatever you're feeling so inclined. Cause like I said, we've got big plans for this podcast. I mean, this is, uh, we're, you're 25 episodes in like, this is like a landmark one for us. Um, also, while I'm thinking about it, um, we've added two more countries. Oh, uh, what? Yeah, two more. That brings our number to twenty-six. We added um some uh listener or two. I don't know how many there are from the Netherlands. Like hello and Turkey, Netherlands and Turkey. Ho ho ho! ho, ho twenty-six countries. Twenty freaking six. We're in forty-three states. Um, so um, including uh, we've got the District of Columbia that listens to you there. Hey. Hello? Hi, guys. Uh, Please, uh, just comment to us. Um, I'm trying to get more interaction, you know, just either on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, however you want to do it. Um, We just have a page. I think I'm going to end up making a a group at some point. I know for Patreons, um, since we just got our one set of uh, Patreon followers that are on there right now. But um, until next time, guys, babble on!